All right, well, this morning we will continue in 1 Peter, and you know, this, uh, this life that, that the Bible describes as being born again, that term has been hijacked by various groups, the New Age movement, and so forth, and simply what that word means is being born from above. Some some people have come to know it as being twice born or whatever, but it, it simply means being born from above. And being born again is a supernatural act involving the impartation of divine life. If you don't have the divine life, the life of God in you, you are not what the Bible says, being born again. You know, we all know that wonderful uh, verse in John 3, 3. Jesus talking to Nicodemus, and, and uh, I think in there it really focuses on the separation between religion or an idea of God or idea of the life of God versus the life of God itself. And he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And instead of having the scriptures embedded in him uh, that should have pointed him to what Jesus meant, uh, you can't go very far, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. Um, he says, how, how can this thing be? How, how, how can that be? Being born again, how is that possible? Nobody has life with God without being born again. There is no person on this earth that says, I know God and I will be in heaven and I, I have the promise of eternal life. No one can say that without being born again. They're deluded. And it's amazing to me how when we read in the Word of God, what exactly does that mean to be born again? We hear it all a lot. We've talked about several instances, and I'll get into my, my message this morning by this example. You know, if there is anything that we need to understand in the Word, if we have a question about anything about the spiritual life, eternity or so forth, we better go to the source. I'm not going to look at what this life is beyond the grave through some book that somebody claims to have died and, and gone to heaven, because, you know what, I've read several of those accounts through the years. None of them match. None of them are, are, are cohesive, if you will. What I'm going to do, if I wondered about what's beyond the grave, I'm going to go to the source. My Lord rose from the dead. If I want to know what's awaiting me, I'm going to go to the Scriptures. And certainly, if I want to know what being born again is, I want to go to the Word of God. And we know that the Master himself has told us exactly what it is. It's the fact that judgment landed upon someone else other than me. It's the fact that I once was dead apart from God, headed for hell, and that's not my case any longer. My sins are gone. I've been completely forgiven of past, present, future sin. I've been made a new creation in Christ Jesus, and I await his return. 
The hope that I have is eternal life, escaping judgment. When we read the first chapter of Peter, it is actually one very candid introduction to the rest of his epistle and his second epistle. He makes no bones about what it means to be born again. And the first thing that he looks at in verse 2 of chapter 1 is the elect. Wow, That's a, that is a deciding factor. And that is a, a, and also a great controversy today. Who is the elect? We went over that. Then he hits in verse 3 that we've been blessed by God the Father. Why do we have a living hope? Why, how does this blessing come to us? How does this eternal life come to us? Only because Jesus Christ has rose from the dead. So let me ask you one thing. Does a person who believes that Christ... Uh, never rose from the dead, can he be right with God? Does somebody that believes that Jesus Christ was will step on some toes, but that's, uh, that's okay. How is it for some people that believe that Christ didn't raise bodily and physically from the grave? He rose spiritually. Are they born again? I mean, think about these issues. God has told us explicitly what it means to be born again. Born from above. My friends, we, you know, we've been elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We've been sanctified by the Spirit. And because we've been sanctified, we are obedient because we've been saved, washed from our sins by the blood of Christ. We've been blessed by God the Father in our Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been given all things according to life and godliness, which we will see later. We've been given all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that the Apostle Paul talks about because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have an inheritance that won't fade away, reserved in heaven for you, because Christ rose from the dead, and we are born again. Look at verse 5. We've been kept by the power of God, because we've been born again. You know that every other major religion, every other religion except for Christianity, states that man must get to God somehow on man's terms, or somehow on man's fortitude, or man's way. I have a friend who was raised strict Roman Catholic. He's been a Christian longer than I have. He still has those traditions that were bred in him as a youngster that still tug in him once in a while. I have to do something for God or something. He can't rest in the fact that God is keeping him. But yet when God is keeping him, God is still working his life in him while he is kept. My friends, we God is working in your life even now like he is in mine. But that doesn't take the fact away that I am kept. While God is working, I am kept. While God is working, I am guarded. When God is working, I am preserved. I'm preserved in his working. That only comes from being born again, born from above, born from anew, made a new creation in Christ Jesus. By that new creation in Christ Jesus, my praise and my glory, they're going to be tested by fire, absolutely, but they're going to be found to be honorable at the revelation of Christ. Because what Christ started in me, he finished. Christ, imagine this. 
There's a young man who who has lived his whole life apart from God, has done the best that he could. By the world standards, he's a good guy. But he's full of lust, he's full of greed, he's full of pride, he's full of ambition, he's full of himself. Doesn't give God a second thought. Goes on his life, doesn't have character that's defined by the Bible, or doesn't have character defined by God, but he has his own good character that he's, that he's inherited from his forefathers, as we will see, a vain way of life. And all of a sudden, God intervenes. And the young man is born again, because he dares to be to heed the conviction of sin and turn to Christ as a Savior, and now as a new creation in Christ. The moment he believes in Christ, places trust in there, God deposits to his account righteousness. God deposits now to his position, not of one of perdition, but one of glorification in the eyes of God. He's got a position. But he's as raw as raw honey. He's not defined at all. His position is secure. Praise God. But he's raw. He, he, he's still, uh, he's just raw. So in the secure position that God has by being born again, God starts working in his life. He is kept by the power of God, and yet God is fashioning him in the character and the image of his Lord. <laughs> That's Christianity. That's being born again. This is how Peter starts his epistle. <coughs> he pulls no punches. Last week, we ended at verse 13 of chapter 1, and we, we, we kind of talked about it briefly. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully, or rest your hope completely upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your hope. Set your hope completely My hope is built on nothing less than what God has done for me. You thought I was going to complete that song, didn't you? <laughs> it's built on what God has done for me. My hope and my strength in life is, well, the Lord God is my strength. Paul, when he was writing in the 8th chapter of Romans, and that chapter is absolutely astounding. In the middle of that chapter, in verse 24, he said, For we were saved in this hope. The hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he's seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it. You see, the hope here that we've talked about before is it, it, it is a confident expectation. A confident expectation. That what God has done, He's going to complete. There's no question about it. Circumstances might cause you to question, well, I don't feel like I'm I'm saved. Come to think of it, I've been a Christian for 30 years, and sometimes I don't act like I'm going to be saved. Is, is it really a um, matter of what I opinion I have of myself, or does it really matter of what I know to be the work of God? Think about that. Charles Swandall uh, made a comment one time, and, and he said, if I could spank, paddle, 
the person who gives me the most grief and causes me the most unrest, it would be me. And I wouldn't be able to sit down for a week. We look at our life a lot of times through our own lens. Instead of looking at life, our life, our Christian life, through the lens of God's Word. We're all guilty of that. There's not a man alive that's ever walked with Christ that has not been guilty of that. It's a cultivating habit. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The scriptures, if my word abides in you and you abide in me, you're truly my disciples. Thy word, O God, is settled in heaven. I have hid thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We could go on. It's looking at life, our life, your life, your Christian life. You're being born again through the lens of God's word. It's the certainty that cannot be shaken. And it's truth. And we will know it's truth. The moment we are born again. There's that knowing. You know, I got I got <laughs> My wife posted something on our, I can't remember, it's our webpage or whatever. Eternity is a long time to be wrong. I don't want to be wrong. I want to know whom I have believed. Paul says, I have know whom I have believed. And I know that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Are we committed? That's what being born again is. We can't know God unless we are born again. Therefore, we can gird up the loins of our minds. We can be sober-minded or sober in spirit and rest our hope fully, completely upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct or your behavior. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. See that in Leviticus chapter 11 and elsewhere. If you call on the Father, if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, your aimless conduct, I love that. You're going nowhere, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifesting his last times for you. Look at verse 21. Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. And I'll stop there and get back into it. In, into these wonderful verses, verses 13, 14, and 15. You know, there's so many people that pick and choose and take things out of the Word of God and they, they say, well, you know what, I, I, I might be born of God, but then it's up to me to keep good works. It's up to me to prove that, uh, if I want to prove to God that I believe in Him, so I'm going to act a certain way. Well, the problem with that is, is folks, we have a dual nature of residing within us. Okay? And, and who's going to be the preeminent? 
Some days one is, some days another is. How does God look at me? How does God look at you? We have been born of the Spirit. You can't get around that. We've been born of the Spirit. God looks at us in Jesus Christ. So if God looks at us in Jesus Christ, we need to look at our life in Christ. And we need to look at it in such a way that what pleases God, what has God given to me, what is, what, what is my recipient, what is the power he's given to me, what, what is my responsibility to walk in this life? I am to glorify God. I am to give him my praise. I am to give him my life. I have to allow his light to shine before me. That was one of the things that should probably, have, in the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's in Matthew 5, must have astounded the people. Let your light so shine before men. Why? That they see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. He says in verse 14, as obedient children. Wow. Obedience. Not conforming yourself to the form of lust, as in your ignorance. We have a choice. We have a choice to be obedient. We have a choice to confirm the way that we were. You know, uh, I can best illustrate this. I, I, um, I was thinking the other day, as I was looking at these passages, you know, after Jesus rose from the dead, he was still on this earth. Okay, he hadn't ascended yet. And what was the first inclination? Peter, James, and John, they, couldn't, they, they didn't see him or whatever. What was the first inclination? Let's go fishing. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. There's a spiritual principle here. But then when we saw the Lord, he had told them before that he was going to make them fishers of men. And he said, come, you follow me. And their lives were drastically changed. He ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit came down, Pentecost happened, and their lives were drastically changed. We can conform ourselves to our former life, but it will be very difficult, and after a while we can't continue to do so because God will not allow that. But we can, we can be obedient children. What I'm trying to say here is, I don't want to get wrapped up in these few verses, are we obedient Verse 15 says, but as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. My friend, that's accountability. And we go all the way back. Verse 16 says, be, is written, be holy for I am holy. What, is it, what does it mean to be holy? You know, let me just read a passage. You can you follow along with me. It's in 2 Corinthians, if you will. If not, that's okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me just read some of these things. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of God. We have been born again. Okay, we got the born again understanding of what, what it means to be born again. What does that entail? So now we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been bought with a price. We know this. Sometimes I think these messages are really difficult. What is the agreement? 
verse 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, has the temple of God with idols. For you are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will dwell in them, walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, verse 17, come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Since you are born again, since you've been risen with Christ, seek those things where Christ is above, and he's seated at the right hand of God. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. We have a solid position. God here is saying, now, if I am truly your God, not only act that way, because I've given you the power to act that way, but I actually live within you. You know, I think that a lot of times in, the, in, the, in people getting the idea of a Christian life, they put the card before the horse. They want to do the good things, and they want to be good, and they want to do this and that without the divine life to, to give them the power to do it. And they get frustrated. I remember talking to Joe's witness, very pointedly, a young man, about 20, 21 years old. He says, I used to believe like you. I used to be a Christian, and I, I wanted to catch him and say, ah, you're telling me now that you used to be a Christian because they call themselves Christians. They are not. He says, but I don't believe that way anymore. I said, so you're, you're a Jehovah's Witness. You're in your young 20s. How could you possibly know at such a young age? You gave up? He says, ah, I used to, used to believe the way you guys do. Now I've seen, I've seen the truth. Well, God says... If you're a Christian, if you have come to me, if I am your God, if my son is your Savior, if you've been born again, live this way. It's not live this way and then we'll talk later, because we can't live that way. We can't be good. We have no standing with God until God redeems us. We have no standing with God until I make the forgiveness of sins that Christ did on the cross my own. The problem is not with what good and what not good I do. The problem is, what have you done with my son? Who do you say that I am? That is all the difference in the world. Be holy for I am holy. Wow. Leviticus chapter 11 and Leviticus chapter 19 explain that out perfectly. People look at holiness now and they laugh at the concept. What is holiness? Well, holiness is the opposite of unholiness. This is light as the opposite of darkness. Holiness, first and foremost in the eyes of God, is separation. We are now separated from our sins and doom and hell, and we are separated to God, righteousness and eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been separated at the moment that we have made a decision that Christ is our only answer from our tyranny of sin and doom. But there's also a holiness that God rots in the believer again, as we said at the beginning of this discussion, as the believer is safe, secure, guarded, preserved, and has position in heaven, God works in his life 
and produces that separation in life, produces that purity of life, if you will. That makes sense? That's the Bible. Pure and simple. For if you call, look at verse 17, if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay in fear. Does that mean I'm to be scared of God? Absolutely not. I fear God because I love Him. The Bible says that we love God because He first loved us. God is love. I fear Him because I revere Him. I fear Him because I know that He is the one, not only whom I must give account, but He is the one who has died, sent His Son to die for me to secure my place with Him. <laughs> hey, if it was up to me to secure my place in heaven or secure my standing with God, that is futile. The Bible declares that being futile from the pages of Genesis all the way through. That is futile. Just like trying to find any kind of, of meaning in this life is futile apart from God. You know what your life is really like? It's like that short blip. It's like the dates in a gravestone. You know what my gravestone is going to look like? It's going to have the date of 22361, just a little short line, and then the date. Does that hit home to some of you? It's on to me. That's what's going to say on my gravestone. It doesn't matter whether Jeff did exploits. It doesn't matter what I did, whatever I've done in my short life. What's going to say on that gravestone, what everybody's going to see is 22361, a short line in that date. Conduct myself with, with fear in my short stay on here on the earth. You know? What really matters? Well, he's going to tell you what matters. Think about that. Think about... Conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here, or the short time you're here on earth. Wow, with fear. Knowing that you were redeemed, verse 18, with not with corruptible things like silver and gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition of your forefathers, or from your fathers, aimless conduct, Aimless conduct because there's no substance to it. Aimless conduct because that is going to end in the grave. Whatever you do here apart from Christ is going to end in the grave. Everything you do here for Christ is going to go beyond into eternity. That's why the Bible calls it aimless. It's, it, it's, there's no substance to it. And are you kidding me? There's some people that are, that are writing literature saying they're your best life now. Are you, are you kidding me? We're getting told a lie because God says that we've been born again with the blood of Jesus Christ. That our hope can be set fully on what is to come. Because the time that we have here is just the short distance between when you were born and when you were going to die. If some of us are, are, are fortunate enough to be here when the rapture happens, we're, going to only, we're not going to have that great stone. But you know what? If we're not, that's what it's going to look like. 
or whatever, your obituaries or whatever. Look at it. You have the date you're born and just that little line. That's your gravity of life. That's your short stay here on earth. And then it's over. And what Peter is saying is that you've been born again. You have eternal life abiding in you. These people that don't have Christ, they don't have eternal life abiding in them. Oh, they will live somewhere beyond the grave, but they do not have the life of God abiding in them. They are still in their sin. They have no hope. They are without God in the world, Paul says. That is an aimless way to live your life. You can have joys and sorrows, whatever, but the man or the woman that is born again needs to understand our position. And it's going to... I want to be in a position with God so that no matter how long and how short that I am here, I want to hear those words, well done. Well done. I think I mentioned this uh, last week, but a guy had asked um, in a conference, this was quite a few years ago, do you believe there's going to be regrets in heaven? And the guy looked for a while and he says, well, he says, I, I kind of think I do. I said, everybody's going to, you know, it's going to be a joyous time at the Venus seat or the judgment seat of Christ. But I believe that, that we will have a sense of the lack of the lack of, of ingenuity or the lack of seriousness or the lack of doing the will and the work of God during the short life. I've wasted it. Why, why didn't I? And by no means, you know, the first will be last, the last will be first, you know. It, it's not the fact of what we do that merits our position before God, but it matters the fact that what we allow God to do before us that will go into eternity. You know, think about that. Knowing. Knowing that you are not redeemed, verse 18, with corruptible things. There's that word, we know. Like gold or silver from your aimless conduct. And you receive that on through your life. You know, if your father or your family, if you've had a good family, tend to live one way of life, you'll tend to live that way yourselves. Or vice versa. They say that a lot of crime starts with generations ahead. A lot of criminals that are out there, a lot of people that have devoted themselves to crime, something happened where they're just basically carrying on a tradition. Not all. Not all. I can tell you, for example, I carried on my dad's tradition by being a good guy. You know? By being honest. But there was no eternal value. Because it wasn't mixed with the life of God. But we were deemed, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot, or without blemish and without spot. You know, 
This is a life that had to be received only from God, because I'll tell you one point, and we'll go on. Again, we've talked about this before, but I, don't, I want you to understand. I want you to be able to stand up for what you believe and give an account of why. We are redeemed with precious blood of Christ. He was a lamb that was out without blemish, without spot. Why? How? How could that be? Because he was born of a virgin. And that is laughed at today. That's not even taught today. This is not even taught today. And if it is, praise the Lord. There are great shepherds out there. Remnant is all over the world. But again, it is a remnant. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. If he wasn't born of a virgin, we are still in our sins. Because he would have had a sin nature as well, and he could not have died for the sin of the world. Perfect lamb, without blemish, without spot, he was perfect. Verse 20 says, He was foreordained before the foundation of war, but was manifesting his last times for you. He was delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God. We see that in Acts chapter 2. God had a determining purpose to send Christ into the world before the world began. There's where foreknowledge starts coming into play. God knows the end from the beginning, and yet God knows what is going to happen because God is not in the trees and He's not in the mountains. God is separate from His creation. God created the world. God created everything. He knows what's going to happen. He knows His creation intimately. He knows the beginning of it and the ending of it. He knows what's going to happen when sin enters into the world. And He knows what's going to happen when sin enters into your life at birth because we're birthed by sinners and by choice. We're sinners at birth, and we're sinners by choice. And God still loves you, and He loves me. I was redeemed not with anything that I could give to God. Oh God, if you save me from this situation, I promise I'll live for you, and I promise every day. You know, that might be good aspirations, as Walter Martin used to say. You can be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. Remember, eternity is a long time to be wrong. And there's not a man or a woman that has come to God in any other way other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. God foreordained it. Look at verse 21. This is wonderful. And by the way, let me let me say this about verse 20 for those of you who are listening, and I hope it's refreshing. He came for you, my friends. That's why he came. And before we go on here, he came so that we might be born again. He did not come as a good religious teacher, again, or anything else. His purpose was to come into the world to die for sinners, of which we all are. And if you think that you can get to heaven by good works or any other way, that's a fallacy, that's a lie. Because God, before the foundation of the world, loved you. How is that? How is that so? He's God. I don't understand that. I have a finite mind. He's infinite. But I can prove beyond a shadow of doubt from the pages of the Bible that God is not in everything. God is separate from His creation and He loves it. And He sent His Son to die for it. 
And if the creation perishes, it's not God that wills that it's perished. It is man in his stubbornness that refused the forgiveness and the love of the pure and unblemished lamb that went to the cross to take their sins upon him. That's how people are going to perish. They're not going to perish because they weren't good enough. Nobody will perish for in eternity because they were not good enough. We're all not good enough. People perish in eternity for one and one reason only, and that is because they refuse the gift of eternal life. They refuse the forgiveness that Jesus bought on the cross. And that needs to be proclaimed because biblical Christianity is under attack. Peter is pleading with who he's writing to. Christ was perfect. He was without blemish. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. But it was manifesting these last times for you. Christ came for you. Lost. That word, lost. I've been lost a few times in my life. It is not a good feeling. And what I can imagine would be more of a worse feeling is, is individuals that are lost that don't even know they're lost. <laughs> they think they get the world by the horns. They don't, you know, they don't they don't realize they're lost. They're undone. We're not lost, brethren. We've been found. We've been bought for. Wow. You're saved. Think of verse 21. Through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Wait a minute. Well, I believe in God. I just don't believe in that Jesus character. The Bible says you don't believe in God. You have a manufactured idea of a placebo idea of what you think God is like. But Jesus came into the world and said, to see me is to see the Father. Oh, Philip, how long have I been with you? When he said, just so is the Father, and this suffices us. Philip, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus said, all that honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In John 5, 23. We believe in God. What is it to believe in God? He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who sent His Son into the world that died for the sins of the world and He raised Him on the third day. And He's ascended into heaven. And guess what? He rose from the grave in the body He was crucified in. Supernatural? Absolutely. All the zombie pictures in the world can't even come close to that glorious fact. Jesus Christ came out of the grave wearing <laughs> the scars Look at my hands. Look at my feet. We believe in God because we've trusted in Christ. God sent His Son, and I believe in Him, and I trusted in Him. And the Spirit comes down and opens my eyes to who God really is. He's the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ. And how do I know that? Because when Jesus came out of the grave... 
We've talked about this so many times, but you must put this together when we see what it is to be born again. (coughs) Being born again is to know God. When Jesus came out of the grave, he rose from the dead and he said, You go tell my brethren I send my God and your God, my Father and your God, and your Father. Now his God, the God of my Lord Jesus, is now my God. The one who created the universe is now my God. The Father of my Lord Jesus Christ is now my Father. It's an intimate issue now. And all that because he was manifesting these last times for me. God rose him from the dead. So that your hope and your faith are in God. Look at verse 22. Since you have purified your souls on obeying the truth. Here we go. Obeying the truth. Wow. In sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently from a pure heart. We've talked for years and years of the genuine proof of the Christian life is love. There's a there's a uh, there's a part in the movie that basically says this. He says you can't love your wife because you can't give her what you don't have. And we don't have when we have the love of Christ that transcends everything. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't boast itself. Love doesn't vaunt itself. Love doesn't boast when, when evil happens and goods depleted. And so on and so forth. We love because God first loved us. The love of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is shed upon our, our hearts through the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Love. Love the brethren fervently with a pure heart. How can we love the brethren if never around them? How can we love the brother if we're not involved in their life? If we go home and shut everybody out and we don't, we don't care about people, I mean, how, how can we say that we love God? God came for me. Jesus shed his blood for me. When I wasn't even thinking about him. Love? That was the last thing that I was thinking about was God and death until he came into my life. And now that's all I think about is God. I love him. I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart and all my soul. And I would gladly die for him. I'm going to die someday. I might as well die in glory. But you know the difference? Peter, before that Christ ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit came. Jesus said, I will die for you. Will you really die for me, Philip? And and then Peter, Peter actually said that. Before before the cock grows three times, twice you're going to deny me thrice. So sincere. God didn't chide him for his sincerity. But he could not give for what he did not have. And when the Holy Spirit came down, this is what we're reading about. This is what his words to that God had, had moved him by the power of the Holy Spirit to write down to the church. Love, power, Rest your hope. We've been raised from the dead. We've been kept by the power of God. We've we've been elect. All these things. And now love one another from a pure heart. And like I've said, tradition, and I believe a lot of, because uh, there's a few of the church fathers that that were disciples. Uh, Paul they said was a disciple of Paul and so forth. That were there. And tradition says that, that Peter loved his Lord so much, he was willingly crucified, and he was willingly crucified upside down. 
What I want to say is the contrast, the love, the understanding. Do we love each other from a pure heart? Even though some of us get pricked once in a while and it hurts? Wow, there's a continuance between verses 22 and 23. Love, believe in, we were redeemed without spot, so forth. Look at verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Which lives and abides forever. Born again. written down four things here that because of born again number one we become a child of God you don't become a child of God any other way you must be begotten by God number two the born again man becomes a new creation you're a new creation in Christ Number three, he partakes of the divine nature. And four, this is, this is probably the most hardest to understand, especially for a young Christian. He partake of Christ's victory over sin. Wow. You weren't born again through something that's going to fade away. You were born again through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Let me read you something real quick that comes from Isaiah uh, 43. Let me just read you. Listen to these. It says of John the Baptist, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. God's glory is going to be revealed. At the right time, Paul says, Christ died. Listen to this. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are as grass. The grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. It endures. It stands. But the word of the Lord endures. I love that. And he closes his first chapter by saying, oh, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Now the Benzantine text, the text that the, the manuscript that the King James was, was based upon adds the gospel. By which the gospel 
the Alexandria Electric text leaves out that gospel and just simply says, now this is the word by which the by which was preached to you. I just want to mention that in case some of you in the American Standard wonder why it's different. It's still the gospel. This is the gospel. The first chapter of Peter, as we have gone through, has explained what the gospel is. The gospel is more, in a nutshell, you'll find what the gospel is in a nutshell in Paul's declaration of 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. We stand in it, by it we're saved. This is the word of truth, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried for three days, and that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That is the gospel in a nutshell. But what does the gospel do? It produces life, it produces solidness, it produces love, but it also produces facts, understanding of what God did. When I or you became born again, let's just lay it out and we'll close with this. You were a lost sinner headed to hell, whether you realize it or not. You were living on borrowed time. And if you would have gone without receiving forgiveness of eternal life, you would have what they call, men called died. And you would have stood before God. But before you stood before God in this great judgment that, he's, that all men are headed to, unsaved, you would end up in a place called Hades, not hell. Because hell is the final lake of fire, the final resting place, if you will, of all the unredeemed in torment. But you're going to die, and you're immediately going to wake up your eyes, and you're not going to wake up into a better place. You're going to wake up in a place called Hades, which is torment. It is a reckoning when the veil is taken away of the consciousness of all the sins you've ever done, ever will do, and the fact that you are minus the one who gave you life. And you are waiting in this place called Hades for judgment. That's what the unsaved dead are right now, according to the Bible. That would have been my plight and your plight, save Christ. So then what's going to happen to one that rejects Christ or rejects his, his offer of forgiveness of eternal life? So as he's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting in this place called Hades, a place of torment, knowing full well that he's going to face judgment, one day he's going to be what they call resurrected and stand before the God of all the universe. And guess who's going to be there? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who they've rejected, you've rejected, and now you're going to have to stand before God and give an account of why you refuse to receive His forgiveness. Why you spat in His face and refuse to go to receive His forgiveness in His life and go your own way. And here's the most fearful thing of all. You who reject Christ are then not only going to be judged, you are going to have the book of life open in front of your face and found that your life is, your name is not written there. And guess where you're going to go? You're going to go to a place called the lake of fire, hell. We will be banished forever from the goodness and the presence of God, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and a horrifying existence for eternity. Eternity is a long time to be wrong. But for the saved, 
for the born-again man who went through a part of his life and through situations that only God knows, sent the Holy Spirit, He convicted you of sin. He he showed that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that life is hopeless of reaching God and that you will have to give an account of your sin, but the Holy Spirit convicts you and, and, and shows you there is a Savior, that God loves you and has provided a Savior for your sin. And you turn to this Christ who paid the penalty for your sin upon the cross and rose again from the dead. And you place your trust in Christ as the only remedy for your lost condition, the only hope of life. And the Bible says that you're born again, not of the good deeds that you have done, but by the kindness and love of God, by the Holy Spirit sent. He's regenerated, He's rejuvenated, He's made you new, He's made you a child of God. He's changed your position from hell and death to eternal life and bliss with Him because your Savior has bought you at a great price. We go through life, now we know God. Life has meaning because we don't have we don't have the life that this world offers we have life pulsating us that god is living within us and when we die we won't die and wake up in a place called hades we will die if we die before the coming of the lord we will be in the presence of the lord jesus christ our redeemer and we will live with him forever awaiting all the glories to follow This is the gospel that was preached to you. It is no cheap understanding. It is no cheap crutch. It is no cheap religion. This is the word of God, pure and simple. (coughs) And those that go to a Christless eternity will go there not because of the bad they have done. They will go there because they have refused to accept the forgiveness and the love of God in Jesus Christ, and they will go in their sin forever. Again, I close this first chapter the way Peter does. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Are we going to believe it? Are you going to receive it? There are those that are listening, I know, because I know this by now. It's taken me years and years. There's those out there that God is speaking to. And if there are those anywhere, even in here, that realize that they have not committed their life to Christ, or they want to be a Christian, but they just have not committed everything to Him, you know that song that Greg did, I've decided to follow, you know, I have decided. It's a powerful song. I've decided to follow him. No turning back. Give him everything. Because first John, or in first John, John writes to believers and he says, you know, to abide in him that we not might not be ashamed at his coming. We don't want to be ashamed. We're going to see as we get into these next chapters of of, of First Peter. Um, he urges us on. 
And I think for us that are Christians that are, that are, that have the Lord Jesus Christ, we need encouragement from day to day. You know, God, we hear so much of judgment and you know this and that. We want it. We want to encourage. We want to balance out the fact that just as the Bible does so eloquently. Yes, we have warning. Warning for the unsaved that they're going to hell unless Christ intervenes. But we also have warnings of the church that God is constantly telling us, you know, he's preparing his bride. He wants the best for us. We need encouragement. And I think that as the days go on, We desire encouragement. We need it. I know these messages for the last couple months have been, sometimes they've been a little severe, I guess. But sometimes that's what we need. We need to, we are sleeping the light. We need to get woken up because we love you. If I, in my immutable way, explain the scripture in, in, in a fallible way. And I say this because I love you and I want you to understand the word of God and the love of God, how much more pure when there isn't any fallibility in God, how much he says he loves you. And for those that are his own, he loves you with a love that knows no bounds. And when he sees you hiding and, and pursuing a thought life or let alone, you, you know, actions always come from thoughts. You know, nobody ever robbed a bank without going through it his head first. Nobody ever committed adultery without going through his head first. Nobody ever did anything without going through his head first. Where is your thought life? You know? Set your hope completely. Rested completely on the grace that is brought to you of Jesus Christ. And yet, because we love each other and God's own, and God loves his own, he's speaking this way. Through his word, because he loves you, and he loves me. He wants us to be waiting for him right at the door. So when he knocks, we can open the door. That's the fallacy of the Laodicean church. They said, oh, we're rich and we have no need of anything. And Jesus is standing out there and he says, don't you understand that, listen to me, you're poor, wretched, blind, and naked. Open the door, I want to come in. That's why he speaks a lot of times this way. He wants to purify his bride because he loves his bride. What man does not want to bring out the best in his wife? Where do you think that concept comes from? Right now, Christ is preparing his bride. He's purifying his bride. He's doing with joy. And yet, it grieves him when there are stubborn parts of his body that don't want to conform, that don't want to sit under his scrutinizing eye, his gazing eye, because somehow they think it's, it's not just. They think it's going to hurt. His gazing eye is there because he loves us. That's why it's there. Two o'clock in the morning, and I haven't heard my son come in the house. I open my eyes and I get up and check because I love him. 
When we haven't checked in with God for days, what does he do? Does he just kick back and say, oh, well, I'm just going to wait until he comes back. You know, I want to punish him a little bit anyway. No, he searches and he points out and he, because he does not want to be separated from us one iota of a second. He wants that fellowship constantly with us. And so that's why sometimes these things are hard to understand or hard to listen to. But for the unsaved, are we doing the many favors by patting down the gospel and saying, oh, well, you know, don't worry, don't be too hard on yourself. After all, God knows that, you know, you're a sinner and, and don't worry. No. Leon, would you pray for us? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the word that you've given us and for the understanding of the word that you give us through the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to help us to know together. Lord, prompt each and every one of us to walk within your will for each other, for our spouses, for the world. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Fully. You still have fear. And the Bible says a perfect love casts out fear. Because my judgment was heaped upon Christ. You know, he'll wear, he'll wear the scars for all eternity of suffering. We need to be sure of this salvation. I think there's some listening that need to know that that might have been going to church for a long time, that might have thought they knew their Bible, that might have, you know, but they never were really sure. You can be sure now that you're are a sinner. We all are. The only difference between me and somebody that's dead in their sin is I'm a sinner saved by grace. I am alive because Christ lives in me. I have a future. I have a hope. I know that my sins are forgiven, that, when, that whether I live or whether I die, I'm the Lord's. I know that when I get when I die and I stand before him, I am not going to be condemned for my sinful condition. I know that when I stand before him, I'll be welcomed because he is my savior and my Lord, and he longs for me to be with him. If you cannot be assured of this in your own life, you need to repent, which means to come to Christ and turn your life around and face him as your savior. Face Him as the one who has taken all the punishment for your sin. He has answered for every awful sin you could ever do. He's answered for it. He was judged for it. He died for it. And He rose again a new creation. And Peter said, that's our living hope. Because Christ rose from the dead and He's coming back. And Father, I thank You for the Word this morning. 
And Lord, I just ask that that those that that are listening uh, by the internet or what have you, the Lord, that they would, would say, in effect, God, I have sinned. I have not given you a second thought. I have not given you your due. And I have sinned. I have gone my own way. I have done my own thing. Not giving a I'm giving a hoot about the things that that were important to you. That I didn't give honor and homage to the one who created me. That I didn't give you a second thought. But Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. And I need to be saved. Now I turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who paid for my sins upon the cross. And that three days later, he rose from the dead. And he bids me to follow him, and I place my trust in him. And that I would know that I have a hope today, tomorrow, and the next day, because Christ rose from the dead. And God, I know that by that happening, that you showed me that my sins are gone if I put my trust in Christ. And I receive that gift of eternal life and forgiveness now. And as Jesus died on the cross and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He died for me so that I won't have to suffer separation from you, God, forever. I want to be born again. Ask him into your heart, into your life, as your savior from sin. And that's exactly what he will give you, is a new life and forgiveness of sins. And Father, I pray this will be applied to us all. That we'd understand your word and that we would rejoice in it. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.